What is complicity in evil? The phrase conjures up visions of human rights abuses like the war crimes which stain the 20th century and indeed more recent war crimes carried out across the world. Complicity in evil does include complicity in human rights abuses, historical or ongoing, from the bombing of civilians and torture of prisoners right through to the mass killing of the unborn. Sadly, human beings have not stopped abusing each other, nor do abuses cease to be abuses if carried out by our friends or allies. However, if by evil we simply mean moral wrongdoing, it becomes clear that avoiding complicity in others' wrongdoing is an everyday issue for all of us. We live in a network of relationships and our own actions often intersect with the actions of those acting wrongly, raising questions of how we should respond. That includes more minor matters such as spreading gossip. A friend, for example, may be trying to tell me something that, however interesting to both of us, she really should not be telling me because that is unfair to the person concerned. Or a workman doing house repairs for me may want to be paid in cash, not simply for convenience, but so as to avoid paying taxes he really ought to pay. In many cases, we ourselves hope to benefit from a process that currently involves or has involved others' wrongdoing. For example, we may buy products from companies that exploit their staff or rent property to people who use it in wrongful ways. Should we say something, we may ask ourselves, or somehow withdraw from the situation? Most of us cannot live in total isolation from others nor should we be too strict in trying to control other people's actions or express our disapproval. Living in society requires a certain retinence about the choices of other people, who sometimes at least need to be left to make their own mistakes. Other times, however, we need to ask if we ourselves are acting wrongly in facilitating or failing to oppose or benefiting from certain actions of other people. Note that this is not about judging other people who may after all be in good faith in what they do and or seriously pressured or confused. Rather, it is about when it is morally right for us to do what facilitates or benefits from or seems to endorse a wrongful action, whether culpable or otherwise. Clearly, this is not a straightforward area and distinctions need to be made. The good news is that moral principles are available to guide us in this area, though we should not expect these principles will immediately resolve each new dilemma. Even where a morally conclusive principle is in question, we still need to ask ourselves if our particular dilemma is indeed the kind to which that morally conclusive principle applies. That said, it does help to know what to look out for, both as regards what is morally conclusive and as regards what is at least morally relevant, even if other factors should be considered too. So what are the principles we should be using in the area of cooperation and evil? Before going further, we need to remind ourselves more generally what morality is all about. To begin with, morality is not just about results. As the philosopher J.L.A. Garcia reminds us, morality is about our mental inputs to our action as opposed to their outputs happening in the world. Morality is about the contents of the heart. True, these contents include any intentions we may have to affect the external world for good or ill. 
However, all our intentions count when it comes to judging an action morally, not just our further intentions. The end does not justify the means in that any bad means unfortunately ensures that we are acting wrongly, however good our end or further aim. Bad means include the bad intentions we share with others, such as those we deliberately assist in doing wrong. When we share the very intention that makes the person's action wrong, this is known as formal cooperation in evil and is itself wrong in all cases. Later, I will be discussing some examples of morally excluded formal cooperation, which do not fit this narrow definition, but I will begin with the clearer examples of formal cooperation where the wrong-making intentions of others are shared by us. Intending that others act wrongly is itself wrong. If it is wrong for you to make some choice, I should not be engineering that bad moral outcome. That merely means that two people will be acting wrongly, one perhaps well aware of the crime of the other, in which, however, she herself is now complicit. While material, unintentional cooperation in evil is often justified, many things we do in effect assist others' wrongdoing, Formal, intentional cooperation in wrongdoing is absolutely morally excluded. As we think about complicity, it's important to remember that trying to do something wrong, even preparatory or unsuccessful trying, is itself morally wrong. Imagine a violent criminal in the process of pulling the trigger on his gun to shoot someone dead. Just as it is wrong for the criminal to finish pulling the trigger with the intention of killing his victim, it is wrong for him to begin pulling the trigger with that very same intention. And it was wrong for him earlier to pick up the gun and load it, and earlier still to form his homicidal plan. All these violent intentions are wrong, and no such intention of the criminal may therefore be intended by us, however unlikely the intention is to succeed. All choices deliberately aimed at a wrongful action, not just the final choice, are morally wrong which in turn means that it is wrong for us to intend another person make such a wrongful choice. It's important to stress this, not least as formal cooperation can be very well motivated while remaining unjustified. Think of someone who recommends to the criminal that he shoot at the legs only, or that he choose a victim who is not a child. While counselling the lesser evil is certainly recommended by some authors, and this has indeed a venerable history, we need to draw, I think, a clear distinction between telling people what not to do and telling them to do something which is itself morally wrong, even if perhaps less wrong than the person's current plan. The second seems to me a clear case of formal cooperation, and formal cooperation in evil, however well-meaning, is always morally excluded. I'll come back soon to formal cooperation, but what are the other kind of cooperation, material cooperation? Material or unintentional cooperation is doing what, in effect, assists or enables wrongdoing or gives the impression of condoning it, but without sharing the wrong intention of the other person. We may know that we are helping someone do wrong in effect, but that's not what we intend in what we do. Material cooperation is sometimes right and sometimes wrong. Indeed, it can be very wrong due to likely effects on the main wrongdoer, the one who cooperates, the main victim, and others who may be badly harmed or confused. 
Other times, however, material cooperation may be justified due to its remoteness and or the goods at stake, especially if the evil in question is in any case likely to occur. Examples might be when a taxpayer helps to fund abortions without intending this in any way, or a bus driver stops at all his stops, including those outside a hospital he knows performs abortions. No one is likely to think that such remote material assistance means that the taxpayer or bus driver is thereby intending abortions, which are sadly all too likely to continue with or without such help in effect. Nor is it likely that any position at all on abortion, even indifference, will be communicated to others in these cases. Material cooperation, while it is sometimes justified and indeed an everyday occurrence, is certainly not always justified. This kind of cooperation too can be morally wrong. The messages we send out by our cooperation can fail to be justified by the benefit we hope to achieve. A taxi driver, for example, should not take a woman to an abortion clinic simply to earn his fare, even if he has no intention whatever that the woman undergo the abortion as opposed to arrive at a certain address. Nor should the daughter of a criminal father accept the money her father gains or has gained by criminal means in order to pay for her education. Apart from giving her father the impression she accepts his crimes or is at least prepared to overlook them, there is perhaps an independent disvalue attached to her accepting the very gift for which her father may have committed the crimes in the first place. She is helping her father achieve his ultimate end, if not the means by which that end is achieved. Yet if the father leaves his money to the daughter in his will when he dies, it may perhaps be permissible for her to accept it, as though her father can no longer be misled by this, though she should also be careful not to give others the impression she accepts the way the money was gained. If we pass to the next generation and consider whether the woman's children are justified in accepting the inheritance she leaves to them, it is still more doubtful that it is wrong for the children to accept the money tainted as it is. The more pairs of hands in between the wrongdoing and the benefit, the less likely it is that bad messages will be communicated by accepting the benefit. Such considerations are relevant to those considering whether to accept vaccines, including certain COVID-19 vaccines, whose development involved at some point the descendants of cells obtained in ways that were morally indefensible. If a vaccine was, let's say, tested on a cell line descended and developed 50 years ago, from fetal remains from the great wrong of abortion, the decision whether to accept the vaccine cannot be equated with the decision to accept a transplant of fetal tissue. The second involves very close and even horrifying complicity in abortion and tissue harvesting, involving, as it does, unlike the cell line, actual fetal remains. The messages given out, giving, given out by using a vaccine tested on an old fetal cell line now circulating in labs throughout the world uh, also need thought, but are not at all the same as those given out by using the body of a just destroyed unborn child to treat one's own. This brings us back to formal cooperation. In science and medicine, there are many examples of cooperation where the cooperator intends a choice wrong in itself on the other's part, including wrongful preparation for some further wrongful act. We might think of scientists who collaborate with abortionists 
whether directly or through a go-between, to obtain fresh fetal material which they want for their research. As arrangements are made in advance to collect the tissue, this involves the collector, perhaps the scientist liaising with the collector, if these are different, informal cooperation with the abortionist's preparations for abortion. For example, he's getting the woman's consent and arranging details with the tissue collector in advance. Or sometimes the abortionist may himself agree to harvest tissue, or at least to do the abortion in a way that promotes successful harvesting. Again, for the person who asks him, this is formal cooperation and absolutely morally excluded. Moving from science to medicine, other examples of formal cooperation include doctors referring patients to other doctors specifically for wrongful procedures, such as abortion or euthanasia. If I am a doctor, and if it is wrong for me to perform abortion or euthanasia, it is also wrong for me to get someone else to do this, perhaps in a futile attempt to keep my own hands clean. In fact, it is worse to get someone else involved as this compromises both of us, not just one. Neither I nor my colleague is a cog in a machine. We are both moral agents with responsibilities and I should not use my colleague to do my dirty work for me, so to speak. If abortion is morally wrong and if this is also true of formal cooperation in wrongdoing, then a doctor may never intend as opposed to foresee that another doctor will perform an abortion. Nor may the doctor intend that the woman herself form the intention to get an abortion from a colleague after the first doctor declines to do the abortion. If the first doctor mentions factually and in general terms the right to a second opinion to defuse the situation while offering positive help with the pregnancy, this should not be with the intention, however conditional, that the woman planned to get an abortion elsewhere. The doctor should not be intending that anyone form a wrongful intention, whether the woman herself or another doctor. Nor does this depend on whether or not the woman is likely to get an abortion from another doctor. It may be too late in her pregnancy for this to happen legally, for example. Once again, wrongdoing is about the contents of the heart. Trying to do something wrong, however unsuccessfully, and however much in good faith, is what is wrong for someone to choose, and therefore wrong for me to intend the person choose. Formal cooperation can be particularly tempting if we are trying to save lives or otherwise do good. For example, a pro-life counselling centre might advertise itself in such a way as to suggest that it offers women abortions or abortion referrals. This looks entirely justified at first sight, but far less so when we think about it further. It is one thing for a pro-life counselling centre to keep the word pro-life out of its advertising material. The centre may need to do this so as not to discourage women who desperately need to talk through their situation, but who believe, thanks to media propaganda, that pro-lifers only care about saving babies. But if the pro-life counselling centre actually tries to tempt abortion-seeking women to try to access abortions via them, this is formal cooperation in the woman's abortion-seeking behaviour albeit for the best possible motives. Good motives are of course very necessary to have, but they are not enough. All our intentions must be good to justify our actions, not just our further intentions. Again, the end does not justify the means. 
When it comes to morally bad intentions, the rule is one strike and you're out. The subject may seem already far too complicated, but I would now like to turn to a more difficult case, which I would still call formal cooperation, even though it does not meet the strict definition given earlier. This is a case in which the cooperator or instigator does not intend a choice wrong in itself on the other person's part, but does intend a choice which in the circumstances is morally indefensible. To explain what I mean, I would like you to imagine a wartime situation where a spy in enemy territory wants to distract the intention of um, an enemy soldier. I'm grateful to Daniel Hill for a helpful discussion of a similar case. The spy draws the attention of the soldier to a lever, which the soldier wrongly believes uh, will kill innocent civilians by releasing gas if the lever is pulled. Perhaps the soldier then intends to kill civilians, or perhaps the soldier is indifferent to killing civilians, but just likes pulling levers. In fact, pulling the lever will kill no one, but will merely distract the soldier in a way helpful to the spy. No one will be harmed, but rather people will be saved while the soldier is distracted. Is this formal cooperation on the spy's part? Clearly it will be if the spy is actually intending the soldier intend to kill innocent civilians. However, what if the spy is merely intending the soldier intends to pull the lever for whatever reason? Is that minimal intention on the spy's part also formal cooperation? And if not, is it morally permissible? One question we might ask here is whether an intention to kill innocent people is currently necessary to the soldiers being motivated to pull the lever? If so, that is at least highly relevant morally, even if the spy does not intend that further intention. We'll come in a minute to the question of mixed motivations, but just as physical causation of harm as a means can be morally conclusive, arguably, even where that means is not intended, perhaps the same is true when our means, even our unintended means, is the unmixed or overwhelming bad motivation of the other person. I should say that I'm still thinking about these issues and very unsure what to say about them. In any case, there is another objection to intending the soldier pull the lever, which I will explain. Imagine a soldier just likes pulling levers and is indifferent to the deaths he knows he will cause. I want to argue that the spy intending the soldier pull the lever, with or without the soldier intending to kill anyone, is a case of formal cooperation in evil. That is because, although the intention to pull levers is not wrong in itself, the intention to pull this lever is already excluded in the circumstances. As a death-causing act, or one imagined by the soldier to be so, the pulling of this lever is seriously wrong unless that act is also thought to protect other lives at the same time, meeting the conditions of double effect. Let's say the same act was thought to be diverting gas from a more densely populated part of the city, where the gas was currently escaping, and the soldier was intending to save those other lives while also foreseeing unintended deaths. However, no such excuse for the death-causing act is present as the soldier understands it. He lacks sufficient reason to pull the lever given the deaths he thinks he will cause, even if he does not intend to cause them. So his intention he pulled the lever 
and attention shared by the spy is morally wrong, not on its own, but in com combination with those background mental states. It may be objected that to say that we can never share an intention which, although not wrong in itself, is in practice accompanied by mental states which make it wrong, would be too demanding a requirement. For example, I might dictate a letter over the phone to my secretary, which I know uh, that she will write with spiteful glee as it involves the reprimand of a colleague she dislikes. However, this is a different kind of case from the case of the soldier, as the secretary has sufficient good reasons to type the letter, reasons she has also made her own, in addition to the bad reason of gloating over her colleague's reprimand. Typing the letter is not an act which stands in need of further justification in the same way as performing a death-causing act, or an act thought to be death-causing, like the soldier pulling the lever. The soldier's intention to pull the lever, given the deaths he thinks will follow, is simply not justified by mere enjoyment of pulling levers. It is not any bad intention in his case, as in the case of the secretary, but the lack of a good intention sufficient to justify the foreseen harm that makes his act morally wrong. Of course, if we imagine a different kind of act, the soldier deliberately affects the bodies of innocent people in ways known to be lethal, then no good further intentions could justify him assuming authority so to act. Innocent people have a right to bodily integrity, which such deliberate, very harmful invasions of their body space will violate. Intention plus foresight can sometimes be morally determinative for the person's own wrongdoing. Something described by my colleague Anthony McCarthy as an unintended morally determinative aspect or umda of the person's action. Not all side effects are mere side effects that sufficiently good intended effects could justify. Rather, some side effects or unintended aspects of our actions are morally conclusive in conjunction with what we do intend. In a similar way, unintended morally determinative aspects of the cooperator's action, such as the fact that the main wrongdoer with whom one is cooperating lacks all justification for his action, can also be morally determinative for the cooperator, I think. I would call this formal cooperation in a wrongful choice, even if the wrong-making aspects of the choice of the cooperator, and perhaps of the main wrongdoer too, are a matter of intention plus foresight, and not intention alone. Examples of spies and amoral soldiers may seem a bit abstruse, but structurally similar cases in our daily lives can no doubt occur. That said, often enough, the kind of cooperation in evil we are looking at on a daily basis is material, not formal cooperation. It thus calls not for automatic rejection once identified, like formal cooperation, but rather for a judgment, a weighing of pros and cons, whether this happens instinctively or needs further thought. Material cooperation can be a difficult area to negotiate without being either too rigorous or too lax, bearing in mind that serious goods may be at stake for us and others in terms of, for example, jobs, careers, or relationships. Sometimes it is easy to work out the right thing to do, even if perhaps quite hard to do it. Other times, however, it may be much more difficult to work out how close to get to others' wrongdoing 
and to strike a balance between being too strict and perhaps more likely not strict enough. Getting advice and even a second opinion on particular issues can be very helpful, but we should also try to be as clear as we can on the principles applying to this area. Some material cooperation in evil will always be necessary, simply because we live in a fallen world. Before I end this talk and we begin the discussion, I want to read you two quotations. The first is from Archbishop Anthony Fisher, the Archbishop of Sydney in my native Australia. Here is Archbishop Fisher making some points about cooperation that should resonate particularly with Christians. He says, even Christ's little band paid taxes, some of which were no doubt used for wicked purposes. Despite his entreaties, when Jesus cured the sick, some of them went on to sin no more. After repeatedly evading his persecutors, Christ eventually allowed himself to be arrested, thereby occasioning his false trial and terrible execution. All sorts of wickedness goes on in our society, and we finance it through our taxes, elect leaders who allow it, and fail to do much to change things. More immediately, almost anything we do can be an occasion, opportunity or means for someone else to do something wrong. To avoid all cooperation and evil would require that we abandon almost all arenas of human activity, such as family, workplace, government, health system, church, and could well constitute a sin of omission. In similar vein, Dr. Mike Delaney, a Catholic family physician, or GP as we say in Britain, points out that the minefield we need to cross is not merely one of particular moral transgressions, but also the rather more ensnaring danger of a disabling scrupulosity. He says that most areas of life are tainted by the spirit of a post-Christian culture, and that faced with this, we may develop an envy for the cloistered life, but without a religious vocation, might instead seek an existence in a secular world which engages it least, a pseudo-cloister. This, says Dr. Delaney, may provide blanket protection from temptation, by which he means certain kinds of temptation, and an unsullied feeling, but refusal to engage the world inevitably results in failure to evangelize it. And having buried our talents, we could find ourselves empty-handed when account is finally rendered. The Christian life, says Dr. Delaney, and with this, I will end the quote and this lecture, does involve risk. Thank you. Yes, we have a, a, um, a question about, you know, wouldn't it be better for Christians to avoid all cooperation and evil, uh, even if it's got very bad consequences for our, for our lives? Uh, and aren't we called to testify against evil in our lives? Um, but of course, avoiding a situation, you could see that as also a kind of cooperation in evil, in fact. You know, let's say if you stay in your job, you may be able to do some good and, and persuade people against, against something bad, but you decide to leave your job when you don't have to. I mean, sometimes you do have to leave your job. Um, couldn't you see leaving your job? as a kind of uh, cooperation in evil. You know, you, you abandon your patience to, you know, let's say colleagues who are going to, who are going to behave very badly towards them. Um, in, in a sense, uh, you know, 
withdrawing from the situation is also a kind of you know cooperation in evil you know of a material kind even if not of a formal kind um now formal cooperation we have to always avoid and uh sometimes material cooperation will be too close and we have to be prepared to make sacrifices but but yes i mean if we look at if we look at um if we look at the gospels if we look at the 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 life of jesus you know we we can see we can see uh cooperation by our lord himself in in the wrongdoing of others i don't know whether whether people noticed um uh, the the um i'm sure i'm sure they did the the poster uh for this event and it has it has judas judas um kissing jesus in the garden of gethsemane you know does jesus stay still does he pull back <laughs> you know what you know it's a it's it, you know, that's a uh, even even that small thing you know was a wrong thing for judas to do so um now, cooperation and evil is simply simply unavoidable. The only question is, uh, you know, what what material cooperation um, should we be involved in, and what material cooperation should we not be involved in? Uh, I have another question. Um, uh, respect for autonomy. Well, material cooperation, yes, but sometimes that will be justified by respect for autonomy. Let's say you have a teenage child, and they've got they get to a certain age, and let's say they get you know you know they're going out, they're drinking too much, you know they're doing things you disagree with, they're taking drugs or whatever. Well, you can't lock them in their room. You know the fact that you choose to sort of step back and let them make their own mistakes. Um, you know that that doesn't mean that you that you agree with what they're doing. That doesn't mean that you intend that they act wrongly. And that just means that you recognise their responsibility. You know for their own. For their own life, and uh, and yes, the same thing in medicine with patients. Uh, sometimes a patient wrongly refuses uh, a treatment, you know, a treatment that's not too burdensome, a treatment that they should accept, but they have the first responsibility for their own health. And after trying to persuade them, you have to step back, you know, because they have the first responsibility for their health, not you. Uh, and so, yes, um, respect for autonomy can certainly justify material. A cooperation and evil uh, on many occasions. I should say, though, that even, even in the case of refusal of treatment, sometimes you will have to override a patient's refusal if you can. I mean, let's say the patient is, is, is suicidal, they've taken an overdose, they won't allow you to, to give them the antidote. Sometimes you do have to, to override their refusal because suicide is very bad socially, not just for the person, but also socially. And that's a that's a that's a particular case, but in many many cases, you do have to step back if a patient refuses a treatment. Um, I was wondering how can we um, uh, be better at if your hierarchy of you know just now your question about like suicide is like a grade grave evil. So how can we good be like a hierarchy of the like the smaller evils? Do you know to help choose like. If I have to cooperate with something evil, how do I how do I choose what's the least? That's a difficult one because, on the one hand, you might say, "Well, well, moral evils are are worse than the non-moral evils," <laughs> but sometimes, as a matter of fact, there'll be a, there'll be a serious non-moral evil that's going to happen because, let's say, someone makes an innocent mistake, and I'm not sure it always 
it can always be neatly divided into moral evils being worse than non-moral evils. And in fact, for a patient to refuse a treatment that they really ought to accept, even for non-suicidal reasons, that's that's a moral evil too, you know, as well as the the physical evil of their of their being harmed by that. But you nonetheless have to have to step back because you have to recognize the patient's the patient's own responsibility for 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 the patient's health. But you know, it's it's a judgment call. You know, when when you make these decisions, you have you have to weigh up the situation and and think, um, you know, how what kind of messages am I giving out um, by what I'm doing? You know, what harm will be caused by my doing it? What harm will be caused by my not doing it? Just just do do your best. You know, it's 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 difficult sometimes. Uh, now here we have a question um, about. The legal situation when it enforcing cooperation and evil, so abortion in the healthcare system. Well, it depends what you're being asked to do. If you're being asked to intend an abortion in some way, or, or if you're being asked to intend intend that someone else uh, um, plan for abortion, then then that's something you can never do. I mean, formal cooperation. It doesn't matter what the law says. You just mustn't do it. Material cooperation sometimes sometimes you can you can tick a box in the course of doing something good. So you know, let's say you're you're talking to a patient who wants an abortion. You might say, well, well, of course, you know, uh, you are free to seek a second opinion from whoever you want. However, what I can offer you is is help to have your baby. You know, we can talk about it more. You can come back. Uh, you can discuss it with your family. Uh, if you say something like that, then you've ticked a box. You can say in, in, the, in the patient notes, you know, the patient was informed of her right to seek an abortion elsewhere, you know, but, but you haven't given the impression to the woman that you support that. You haven't given the woman, you know, any, any hints on who might give her an abortion. You've just said that to, to make her, in a sense, to, to reassure her. Um, Yes, it's it's a bit like um, she may be more likely to hear what you have to say when she knows well you're not preventing her from going off and finding someone who'll do it, but you know that aside, here is what you can offer her. Um, so so sometimes sometimes you have to be a little bit cunning, and you know you have to show the show the show the the. You have to be you know wise as a serpent as well as innocent as the dove and. Um, there's there's certain things you can say and write down in the patient notes that will make it look like you're conforming to what the authorities want, what, without giving the woman the impression that 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 you agree with abortion, without intending that the woman planned to get an abortion, you know, because you know those are things you should be avoiding. I, I was uh, thinking of a situation when uh, the legal system system and forced to, for example, inform about who, who can provide abortion services when you are running a, a medical clinic. That, that's the situation in, in Poland now. So you have a conscious clause for a doctor, but for the institution, the institution must inform what to do further to, in order to, to get abortion. But I think that, that what, what you that is more or less applicable to this situation. 
yes, I mean, again, it, it, I mean, and perhaps the institution, you know, this might not be, this might not protect the institution, but, but you know, they, they could try to say general things as in, you know, well, of course, you know, you, you are free to, to, to you know, to, to, uh, to get a second opinion elsewhere, but we can only tell you what we can offer here and that kind of thing. But, uh, but I think if you give her the name of an abortionist, you know, that, that's, that's, even if that's not formal cooperation, that's, that, that gives such a bad message and, you know, it's such a harmful thing to do that you should really be avoiding it. I mean, I've got a, another question here about, about uh, the object of the act. When I talk about intentions, I mean all the intentions, including the intentions involved in the object, if you like. Um, so I, I, when I talk about intentions, I don't just mean your further intentions, I mean your immediate intentions, all your intentions in acting. Um, and I do think I do think we have to look at what's going on in the person's head because you know if we look at the case of the of the soldier, he's acting very wrongly even though no one is in fact going to die. He's acting very wrongly because he thinks people are going to die, and he has no reason, as far as he is aware, to to accept that side effect. You know, he's not trying to save other people by the same act that. Uh, that results in some people's deaths. Yes, I don't. I don't see any way out of looking at what's going on in in the mind of the person who's who's acting. Now, of course, you know when when our intentions, you know, are, are aimed at connecting with the external world, but sometimes we we get facts wrong about the external world and. You know, in those cases, you know, we can we're still acting either rightly or wrongly, as the case may be. Um, you know, because it does, you know, it is about intentions and and attitudes and and you know what what we foresee is happening, even if we're wrong in foreseeing uh, foreseeing that as uh, as an effect of our actions. Um, it is about intentions, but it's about all your intentions, including your immediate ones. Uh, uh, and it's not only about your intentions, it's also about your attitudes, what you foresee, what you accept, um, and so on. But I, I do think the, the philosopher JLA Garcia is, 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 um, is very good on this, is, is, um, is very helpful in, in talking about, um, about intentions. It's a very good uh, book chapter he wrote called Intentions in Medical Ethics. Uh, I've got a question here about epistemic factors so if you're offered a vaccine and you don't know about about the source of the vaccine um, yes that's a very real situation in fact because um, the Pfizer vaccine was tested on an old cell line which was probably originally sourced from an abortion but it's not completely clear because in the case of that cell line the the records have been lost so there's some possibility that that, that, that cell line wasn't uh, sourced from an abortion. Um, and certainly, you know, that, that vaccine is preferable to some because although it was tested on a cell line, it didn't, it wasn't produced in a cell line uh, like, like some, some vaccines. Yes, I don't think, I don't think these things are absolute. I think, I think you can um, uh, sometimes accept a vaccine, even if you disagree with, with, um, some aspect of the way the vaccine was produced, just like you can accept a medical treatment which was developed in a way you disagree with. You know, maybe it involved, um, maybe a medical treatment involved um, uh, tests on human subjects, you know, 
50 years ago that were much too dangerous at the time and um, the patients could have been harmed or were harmed. Um, that doesn't mean you can't accept the treatment. Um, but, um, but yeah, sometimes you will be acting on the basis of, of, uh, of incomplete, incomplete information. So you just have to, have to do the best you can. There's a, a, a link here uh, to a CDF uh, document, a recent uh, document of the Con Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith uh, on, on COVID-19 vaccines, which is, which is, yes, which is certainly worth looking at. I've got a question about counselling the lesser evil. Let's say people who say, well, if Catholics don't like abortion, then Catholics should be supporting birth control. They should be supporting contraception. And is that is that acceptable as a compromise, as, as a step in the right direction? I don't think so. I think I think we have to distinguish between saying that one thing is better than another, and recommending um, the, you know the first thing, not the second. Uh, you can say, you know, abortion is much worse than contraception, without saying so. I think you should use contraception. One is a factual statement and the other is a recommendation. You're actually intending that the person use contraception, you know, as a means to, to preventing abortion. Um, so, so, yes, I mean, you know, you can say as a, as a matter of, of moral fact, as a you know, that, that, that uh, abortion is much worse, which it is, but you can't recommend contraception. And... And in any case, this this may not work because uh, you know contraception can change people's attitudes to 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 human life, even though it's not the same as abortion. People can uh, can can become less accepting of 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 children um, through using contraception. In fact, so it's not even clear this is going to this is going to work. You know, in, in preventing abortion, though of course it might. Um, so. Uh, so yes, just the distinction between a factual statement that this is better than that, um, and saying um, so you should use, so you should do this. And uh, excuse me, Dr. Watt, I would like to take you back to Marcin Ivanitsky's question because I think you forgot to address his first question. Oh, uh, so he has two questions. So the first one: How do you see a relation between complicity in evil and moral dilemmas? Given a widespread presence of the situation you described, for example, structural social evils, are we able to avoid complicity in evil? Well, we're able to avoid complicity if, if by that we mean wrongful cooperation. Uh, uh, we're able to avoid wrongful cooperation, but we're not able to avoid all, all cooperation. That's simply not possible. Um, you know, because of, you know, because of, of human sin, because, you know, we live in the world we do and, you know, whatever we do, you know, it will be contributing in a many, in many, many cases to, to wrongdoing in some way. If we do nothing, that may contribute. If we withdraw from the situation, that may contribute. If we act, that may contribute. So it's just a matter of working out when, you know, we can, uh, we can do what in some way, you know, gives people an opportunity to do evil or, you know, assists evil with, you know, without our intention, when we can do that and when we can't. There's a question here about how can we account for material cooperation and evil? You know, how can an agent be held accountable for material evil without any knowledge of their action? 
Yes, I mean, uh, maybe the word unintentional is a bit is a bit misleading there. Maybe I shouldn't have used that word. Um, uh, I was mainly thinking of situations where where you where you do foresee that some harm will come from what you do, or that you risk at least giving the impression that you support someone else's wrongdoing, for example, um, where you do foresee that, but nonetheless you have to make a decision whether you tolerate that, whether you accept it or, or whether you don't. Um, now, you can also be, uh, be responsible for things you should have uh, foreseen and didn't. Um, so when you give scandal, when you give a bad impression to other people, you know, that in ways you should have thought about, then sometimes it's like another kind of recklessness. You just aren't thinking what you're, what you're doing. You know, you just don't, you, in a sense, you aren't thinking about other people or you aren't thinking about about other people enough uh, or maybe you're, you're so distracted by your wish to benefit some people or, or maybe even the same person that you forget about another kind of harm that you're doing uh, at the same time um, so so yeah many cases in many cases of material cooperation you will be foreseeing uh, but in some cases you know it'll be something maybe that you should have foreseen and 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 and, and didn't didn't foresee, I, but I think you should. You could still call it material cooperation if there was no reason for you to foresee it at the time. You know, maybe you were acting quite quickly, and um, and as I say, I mean, we we you know if, if we if we count if we if we count situations where you know where we either foresee or don't foresee the harm that we're doing in cooperating, then then you know material cooperation is a very common occurrence. So we have another question uh, about the legal aspects of complicity. Um, so in a pluralistic society, do we have to accept legal compromises? Yes, I wonder whether this, the question is about what individuals trying to avoid legal trouble or whether the situation is more about um, trying to change the law, trying to make the law better you know, without making the law perfect because you can't achieve that yet politically. Um, now, if anyone's interested, I, I do have a paper on, on changing unjust laws in, in Logos e Ethos, um, a Polish journal. Um, so, yes, uh, you might say, well, you know, let's say your country allows abortion, allow, you know, maybe allows lots of abortion, uh, and let's say politically you can only get support to change the law a bit, not as much as you would like. Uh, what kinds of changes to the law can you justify? Uh, and I would draw, draw a distinction between what I might call selective banning. So saying, well, at least can we not have abortions, you know, let's say in Lublin, or at least can we not have abortions, you know, of babies with Down syndrome, or, you know, at least can we not have abortions, you know, of of six months old babies or something. Um, so saying what you can't do, um, and that I think can be can be justifiable. And I've distinguished that from telling people how to do abortions. Because if you're telling people how to do abortions, then you're intending, you know, abortions or you're intending abortion preparations. And so you're intending that someone do something that's that's wrong. So you can tell people what not to do. But I don't think you can tell people to do something that's wrong, even if it's less wrong than what they're doing already. 
Uh, I mean, you can you can think of examples. I mean, let's say, let's say you know, let's say, a, you know, a soldier is 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 massacring people, and let's say you say, well, don't don't kill them, just just chop their hands off. You know, I mean, chopping someone's hands off is less bad than killing someone, but you can't recommend that someone chop someone's hands off. Uh, an innocent person, you know, not not in the not in the middle of a fight or something. Um, so, so yes, I, I think I, I would see it in terms of of, of selective bans, uh, 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 you know, to achieve as much protection, you know, for the child as you can, uh, as opposed to telling anyone how to do abortions or uh, how to prepare for abortions, because those are those are wrongful intentions. If anyone's interested, I mean, it, there, there's been um, a lot of debate over what, what this what this means. But um, uh, Evangelium Vitae does, of course, have have a section on you know on what, what you do about an unjust law that you can't completely abrogate, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and the Pope does say that 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 you can you know that some kinds of legislation aimed at removing the worst aspects of the law you know can be justified. Dr. Watt, this is System Lee Grace. Um, my question is, um, in order to change a law, right, or, um, is that the general population needs to kind of start steering towards seeing that the law really is unjust. Whereas what I, I, my experience is that society in general, like even when I see this among children, is losing an awareness of good and evil. So... Like, have you got any comments on like how to get populations <laughs> to distinguish good and evil a little bit better? Yeah, I think we're a little bit of a unique crowd here today. <laughs> um, but it's obviously something that we're passionate about. So what are your comments about that? Well, I, I suppose move from what they do agree to, to on to what, what they don't currently agree on so yeah just just simple things you know like you know you, you know you agree that you know you don't kill people because they're, they're creating problems for other people or just because they're you know they're they're they you know they're just because they're making it difficult for the other person to keep their job or whatever it is we don't kill people for that reason do we not innocent people you know um uh, yes yeah, so just just sort of patiently moving from from where they don't agree to where they do agree. Um, I mean, I've, I mean, it's it's sometimes you get someone who ha, who who actually has has a sort has a very clear ideas about human rights, but just doesn't yet see that the the fetus is a is a human being, and then then you can talk about the science of it and so forth. But uh, but sometimes you have to just sort of patiently work on the moral principles and just just. But, but always try and try and sort of invite them in sort of will you agree this don't you or isn't that similar you know um, uh, but it's it's difficult and I'm not sure the same thing will work for every every person I mean some people some people respond very well to stories and you know um, uh, you know some people images of the unborn child um, are going to are going to work um, so um, so yeah it just depends I suppose. Of course, this isn't just about abortion. I mean, in all sorts of areas, you know, but, uh, there's there's a lot of work to be done. Um, 
but um, but again, you can move from what you know what people do agree on to what um, what they don't. I mean, for example, many people don't still don't agree with polyamory. They they don't think that you know groups of groups of adults can get married and live together, and that's that's all fine. You know, a lot of people would still say that was wrong. Uh, so so just sort of you know get them to work out work out you know what is it that's wrong about that and. Um, um yes and and sometimes sometimes you can get people to take sexual ethics seriously by sort of inviting them to see you know uh, why sex is important you know why there, there's there's a high consent requirement you know why it's not just like giving someone a hug you know um you know why might that may that be you know why two people why for life you know doesn't that have something to do with you know a good environment for raising children and who are conceived by these two people in, in normal cases, and um, but um, but yeah, there's different ways of doing it depending on what the, what the subject is really. Uh, I've got another question here about um, is the form formation of a wrongful intention an intrinsic evil? Yes, I wasn't quite sure about the question. I mean, if the intention itself is wrong, then then the intention itself will make that an intrinsic evil. Um, so if you intend to do an abortion, that's an intrinsically wrongful intention and that, that intention is enough, but sometimes it's the intention plus foresight that makes something, something wrong. Um, so, so yes, even if it's something like, let's say a surgeon cuts into someone's chest or something, well, is that step one in heart surgery or is that is the surgeon killing someone you know um yes you you have to look at you know is this a is this part of a healing procedure or is this or is this part of you know, a procedure that you know let's say treats the person instrumentally as a source of organs or or whatever um so yes yeah, some things are wrong because of the intention and some things are wrong because of the intention um plus plus um you know plus the foresight um and of the second kind of thing in the second kind of case some things are wrong uh, because of the intention plus the foresight whatever can be achieved uh, by the by the act and some things are wrong because of the intention and the foresight you know uh, because not enough good is achieved in the circumstance as in the case of the of the um of the soldier pulling the lever because he likes pulling levers. So he doesn't think he, he thinks it's going to kill people. He doesn't think it's going to save anyone. And so in that case, even though he could pull the lever, you know, to divert gas from one group to the other, to from bigger group to a smaller group, he, he doesn't have that intention. And so what he's doing is wrong. No, but if if he were intending, you know, a, 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 an invasive, very harmful procedure on an innocent person. You know, uh, uh, you know, for no, you know, not for any therapeutic purpose at all. You know, then in that case, you know, whatever further intentions he might have, you know, the, 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 that intention plus foresight um, would be enough because you can't, you can't just assume that you have authority over over the lives and bodies of innocent people like that. You know, that, that's that authority is is not yours. Um, so, so yeah, I, mean, I, I suppose it's sort of three kinds of three kinds of case really.
But I think it's worth remembering that even the intention to kill an innocent person, it, it, you know, it, what you could say is, well, there's an element of foresight there too, because mostly you won't be intending to kill the person because they're innocent. You're intending to kill this person and you know they're innocent. So even that is, you might say, is intention plus foresight. Uh, and that's that's enough to make what you're doing um, doing morally wrong, um, given a, a, again that you have no authority over the person's over the person's life and body. You can't just assume that authority.